Welcome to Politics in Question, the podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I am a professor of political science at Marquette University and one of your your hosts. And today I'm really excited to welcome Professor Marcus Board Jr. He is an associate professor of political science at Howard University, author of Invisible Weapons at with Oxford University Press, and also co-author with Kenesha Grant, uh, who's a, a past guest of the pod and his colleague at Howard of a chapter on social movements and political parties in a new report from the American Political Science Association on the, the present, past, and future of American political parties. So I, I want to thank you for joining us, Marcus Board. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. Great. So I actually want to kick off here because this is an institutions podcast and we give our listeners a lot of information, usually about the rules, about the you know Congress and electoral rules and all that kind of business. That's usually where we're at. I, I want to switch gears here and um, talk to you about your work on social movements. So before we get into the specifics of some of your recent work, can you tell us a little bit about how you define the term social movements and how that's significant for our current moment in American politics? Sure. And and shout out to all your institutions, listeners. Yuck. Hate it. It's yucky to me. Just kidding. Uh, sorry. Is this also a very serious podcast? Because we're going to have fun today. <laughs> social movements. Uh, I usually define them based on either their functioning, right? So like how a social movement works or through their differentiation from other coordinated actions. So like distinguishing them from groups or factions or lobbyists or parties. And so social movements in general, if we kind of broke it down very simply, would be organized groups collecting with the masses towards a particular political aim. And this typically these organized groups exist outside of institutional politics, but as we know, can very easily exist inside as well. It's 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 amorphous. It gives us all the space to think all the things. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, this is a fun podcast, although I'm learning I'm much funnier when I have my co-host to make fun of. Without them here, I, I have to think of different shtick, different material. We can okay, work on so, it. We'll do it live. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing wrong with a little a live uh, humor workshop uh, in the context of a politics podcast. Um, could you actually, since since we're kind of on this topic, and I really enjoyed uh, taking a look at your recent book, could you tell us a little bit about the social movements that you cover in Invisible Weapons? So I talk about the movement for Black Lives, which is in our lifetimes, the largest social movement that has ever existed, started by three queer feminist women who are pushing towards a movement for transparency, for accountability, and above all, for justice, and doing it through the lens of race, gender, and sexuality. So that's a movement for Black lives. But I also tap into the women's anti-violence movement. I tap into Black HIV and AIDS work. Uh, that did not quite manifest to the level of a movement as opposed to, say, organizing and collective action, but not quite tapping into the masses in the way that we often think about movements. I also talk about Black power and civil rights movement as well. So there's a lot of different uh, ingredients in the gumbo that is invisible weapons. But I really try to hone that conversation in such a way that helps us understand better how these extra or beyond institutional politics actually affect the way that we live our lives and the way that we think about what's possible in the world through politics. Yeah, this is, I think, really important to 
kind of highlight for our listeners, um, maybe who haven't had a chance to read your book yet. I always emphasize for my students when I teach them about social movements, usually about um, kind of thinking about the politics uh, through the beginning and middle of the 20th century of civil the civil rights movement, is really thinking about how people who've been excluded from politics, often on the basis of their their identity, who they are, aspects of, of who they are that, that cannot be changed, um, that it's really about gaining political power for people who've been left out of the process. And that's, I think, you know, this really interesting and sometimes productive tension between social movements and, in this case, the established institution of political parties is really, I think, you know, critical topic for us to think about today and motivates your chapter with Professor Grant in this new APSA report. So I want to get your thoughts on social movements and political parties a little bit. How do these groups benefit from working together? What are the, the risks and benefits for these movements of joining forces with a with a political party? Um, and, and in your book in particular, you talk about a kind of de-radicalization of movements. Is this relevant to the to the social movement and parties relationship? I guess to, to kind of take them in order, if we're thinking about working with parties, I actually think we might think more about organizations. So this is Michael Minta's work, No Longer Outsiders, that he just came out with in 2022, I believe. And that talks a bit about justice-based organizations working in tandem with parties. Now, of course, a group of organizations with mass backing could be considered a movement working with parties. And I think Legina Gauss's work is basically saying that when parties are experiencing what movements bring to them, that they become better at democracy. They essentially become more representative, they incorporate better policies, and they actually satisfy the masses better when they are accountable in the case of the movement for Black Lives. Uh, Diva Woodley's work in 2021, Reckoning, also does the same thing. So that's kind of the, the gist of the relationship with parties is that it's not necessarily fair to say that a party can work for and with an entire movement because movements have different wings, they have different groups, they have different organizations. However, parties can work in tandem with movement where across the spectrum of any particular social movement, there is a general thrust or an idea about what's happening. So, of course, civil rights and black power era were about racial justice largely. Of course, it ended up being a little bit more about class politics. This movement is largely about justice, but the gap that my book identifies is that the types of justice that organizers were interested in were not necessarily translated to the types of justice that the masses were interested in. So they were along the lines of civil rights and Black power and the Black arts movement that were a lot more focused on racial politics as opposed to the movement itself that were focused on race, gender, and sexuality, along with class, capitalism, disability, a whole, a whole slew of things. They were trying to bring everything together. And there was just a disconnect there uh, that, you know, created some challenging situations for, for, uh, for everyone, really, but still pushed the agenda and the mission forward. Yeah, there's so much here that's, that's interesting. I want to, you know, kind of note that while there's a, the disadvantage of not having my, my co-hosts here is I can't make fun of their eating habits, but the advantage is we have a little more time and I could, I could blather on about, about my work. So, I mean, I think there are a couple of points of relevance here. And one of them is um, looking at the kind of evolution of the relationship between 
uh, civil rights movement and the presidency and political parties in the 60s. I find this transformation really kind of fascinating. And I'm wondering if you have comments on it, where we essentially see a shift from about between 1963 through 1967 or so, when the civil rights movement goes from having the ear of of President Johnson and and being a kind of force that mainstream politicians suddenly really have to respond to and reckon with after decades of them working at that movement, working in that direction, to by 1967, at least my sort of read on it is the the movement has become anti-war, anti-capitalism, and, you know, the kind of poor people's campaign elements have started to emerge and the politicians get scared again. Like there's this very short window before mainstream politicians become terrified of what social movements have to deliver. And I'm just, I'm curious, you know, if that's right. And if that's, you know, what we can learn from that right now. Yeah, I think, I think you're spot on. I think I would push maybe the idea that the movement always had these anti-capitalist origins, at least to the extent that poverty was considered a social issue and that the normal functioning of American economics insisted that people be impoverished. So in that sense, while while the movement was not necessarily saying we need to fundamentally restructure the economy, they did say that this economy is rooted in the exploitation of masses of people, and we need to at least address that. So it may be more of a evolutionary intervention than a revolutionary one, but it's still worth noting. But hard agree. Yeah. The thing about social movements is that they are evidence of some of the fundamental limitations and failures of U.S. democracy insofar as they are saying that we can identify this group of people as those for whom elected officials and institutions are explicitly separated from. So to your point, if you can say as an elected official, well, I'm not doing what those people are doing, it's an us versus them thing, as opposed to saying these are the people we're representing. And so that dynamic very often, to your point, gets stale, essentially. So you have these moments where when a movement is having some successes, then you inevitably have the the ebb uh, to that flow, right? That the, the pushback, the counter protest, the counter revolution. And so the challenge for movement oriented folks is to constantly be evolving, constantly be changing arguments, constantly be in conversation and trying to create a sustainable community of folks who are engaged in this work, as opposed to communities of people who similarly ebb and flow in their capacity to be engaged and to be involved and to be committed to these changes. And so what we're describing, I think, I think you very aptly say what you describe in the idea that these things kind of have a, a rhythm to them. And ideally, that rhythm can kind of lead us a different direction. But generally and historically, it generally leads us back to uh, more rigid and somewhat uh, intractable governing body. Yeah. So on that on that note, I want to move us kind of into the more contemporary set of questions that you and Kanisha Grant raise in your chapter. This is a really interesting chapter in a report. You know, the APSA Political Parties Report, which I was one of the reviewers for, really lays out a lot of different scholarly perspectives on what's wrong with political parties, um, what could be improved, some of the debates about polarization, some of the different levels at which parties operate in Congress, state level, and the mass electorate, etc. And it kind of, you know, it builds on the perspective. Political scientists, I think, tend to be really, like, pro-political party and pro-institution. And the social movement perspective 
often challenges that a little bit. And, and so I have a couple of questions about that, really, in part about how you see this play out differently on the left and the right. The chapter covers a variety of, of social movements, and I see those relationships as really different. The Christian conservative movement, the Tea Party, Trumpism, versus the movement for Black Lives, feminist movement, um, LGBT movements on the left. I see these increasingly as operating differently, but I didn't necessarily get that point from your chapter. And you all describe the Christian conservative movement as bipartisan, which I found especially <laughs> striking. So I'm wondering, wondering if you uh, say a few words about that. Yeah, yeah, you caught that, huh? We were doing a thing. We didn't, you know, political science on top of being you know, party and institution oriented can also be a little constrained in our focus on results or outcomes or things that we think are definitively possible from our perspective. Some call that objectivity, other call that observational analysis, some call it the scientific method. But I think when you study social movements, you do not have the luxury of a written and set parameter around the workings of any particular organization or movement. You you almost never know when people are going to show up versus when they're not, when they're going to learn some new ideas or approaches and when they're not. And a part of that is the world making that Adam Gitacho talks about some in her work, but it's this world making process that governments used to be in conversation with different governments at different times. And so in this case, I think we wrote this chapter as a way to push the conversation forward, given the mandate of the document itself that it was in. So the mandate uh, that we got uh, when we were, we were participating in this more than red and blue political parties and American democracy, the mandate we got somewhat contradicted the work that we were doing. So the mandate being that we want to talk about the ways that mutual toleration and institutional forbearance. We wanted to talk about the way that those things are generally beneficial for democracy. But when you study social movements, part of some of the arguments that folks are making, particularly those who are engaged in revolutionary politics, part of the argument that they're making is in fact that this mutual toleration in particular is not necessarily an effective way to accomplish or achieve political change, let alone justice. And so in the in that interest, I wanna be able to reconcile or at least manage and, and deal with these disagreements where one side is saying, we need to be more understanding, we need to move away from these contentious politics versus Diva Woodley's work in Reckoning, Legina Gauss's work in The Advantage and Disadvantage, got it this time, and in my work in Invisible Weapons talks about the democratizing impact of these contentious politics. So there's just a challenge there. As for the question about churches, which is a little scandalous, so excited for us. We got a little juice, a little juicy in here. Um, I think that there is a read of Christian conservatism that is very clearly tied to the evangelical right. And that very clearly and unsubtly is an overwhelmingly white and Republican driven process and political process, right? So we all know that. What is a little less well-known are the ways that this happens on the left. 
And so, for example, under Christian conservatism, which we deliberately didn't choose the evangelical conservatism, but under Christian conservatism, we can account for the ways that Christian churches on the left turned their eyes away from Black HIV and AIDS organizing, who turned away from and are currently turning away from organizing around trans rights. And so some of these challenges in Christian conservatism has a lot more to do with the political stances of different churches and less to do with the main narrative that we get about the evangelical right, which obviously is very tied into what some would argue is an ethno party with the Republicans. But I think that Kathy Cohen's work, particularly in Boundary of Blackness, really challenges us to think about how churches, even black churches, are engaging in a process of secondary marginalization and reinforcing a social standard that leans into conservative more, conservatism more often than not. And so we wanted to be able to address that, to account for that in a very short chapter, in very limited space, which obviously, you know, I would have liked to have done more. But I did write uh, an essay with Brina, and that essay was titled Religion, Police, in the movement for Black Lives. And we spend some time talking about religious elites who encouraged policing, who encouraged things that led to mass incarceration, who encouraged and supported the idea of a surveillance state and how our ability to at least acknowledge that it exists doesn't necessarily frame the entire church as some type of monolithic monster, but actually does the opposite. It, it acknowledges that there are very many nuances in this organizing body in a body that doesn't necessarily play politics by the rules on which they are designated, right? So we know as scholars that engaging in partisanship, you take a piece in for a penny, in for a pound. And at the same time, a lot of churches will say, well, we support this policy, right? We are pro-life. We are or, or anti-abortion. We are pro-police or in their minds, maybe anti-crime. Right. And in engaging in these politics, they're still reinforcing a mechanism that moves across both parties. And in fact, it's a lot of the ways that the Democratic Party was able to capture some of these folks, because as the party moved further to the right, so, too, did some of these institutions and they met them there. That was a long answer. I was very excited no, that to makes, hear it, though. <laughs> no, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. And this is I mean, this really does actually align a lot with some stuff I've been thinking about as I've been trying to think specifically about race and how it fits into this story, the exact story you're talking about, which is the story political scientists became very kind of overtly invested in after Trump was elected in 2016, which is a story about norms and institutions and kind of forbearance and mutual tolerance. And that these are the mainstays of democracy. And this is what we ought to be preserving because these are the things that are being attacked by this administration. And looking at that moment, I kind of saw something different, um, which I've written about in a, a couple of contexts. So I'm now working on this book that connects president, the presidential kind of um, what I call disruption. And I'm not crazy about that term either. I'm uh, winding up into a big question here about terminology. So I call this disruption where presidents typically are really uh, invested in preserving the racial status quo, and very rarely we see them disrupt it. And then afterward, we see their successors get impeached in the cases of, of Andrew Johnson in the, the 19th century and Richard Nixon um, following civil rights and then Donald Trump. And so kind of looking at how, how these there are, this, there are these sort of hidden dynamics in which institutional norms and preservation of the status quo has this, you know, has this, this oppressive element to it. 
and there's a gender part of that story and there's an immigration part of that story, but I find the recurring story in American politics is, is more kind of fundamentally about our traditional um, racial line. And so, you know, so I'm thinking about and working on that terminology. And I also wrote a chapter about parties that I think actually is sort of dovetails with some of what you and Kinesia are trying to communicate, which is the, the party, the chapter is in an edited volume and it's called Are Parties Inherently Conservative? And I stole John Gehring's term. Are you familiar with this book? It's about parties and ideology. It was written in 1998, but it's actually still, um, I think, interestingly fresh. And he uses this word preservation to describe like 19th century Democrats and just to describe their sort of investment in um, the status quo. And I use this to describe political parties, both, I mean, looking at these pieces of conservatism that leak into a democratic party that's, you know, moving left in some ways, but in other ways is really invested in traditional hierarchies and, and also in kind of traditional ways of translating mass opinion into, into policy. Right. So I use very similar frameworks, what you guys use, but I'd call it preservation. And you guys talk about evolution versus revolution. And I wanted to, I wanted to get some more background on that, the terminology or really any of your thoughts on any of these ideas that I'm throwing out at you. No, it's fascinating. I, I'm I'm intrigued. I, we do the same thing. So I love hearing about it. A few thoughts to the presidency example. I think that is fascinating and uh, about presidential disruption. And I get it. You're working on terminology and that's great. One of the things that I find most interesting along those lines of disruption is a story that I share pretty often with my students thinking about President Obama, whom you know, is beloved by so many and the ways that he navigated racial conversation. And so it's very reasonable, I think, to say, well, he was in an interesting situation. Obviously, something makes him a little different than the other presidents. I'll let you guess. First two guesses don't count. Um, But him being the first black president, I think, put him in a position to navigate these racial dilemma that inevitably always come up in American politics to navigate them a little differently. And at the same time, it's not a coincidence that the movement for Black Lives starts while he is in the White House. And so I think about the time when Henry Louis Gates gets arrested for breaking into his own house and Obama's immediate reaction, one of his first moments to to be on the main stage about America and the racial dilemma beyond, of course, his candidacy and successful campaign that he won and navigated things there. But in this moment, he responds like what I would say is a human being with common sense. And he says, yeah, what the officer did was stupid. And whoa, he did not know what was coming down the pipeline once he said that. And so he quickly, very quickly and consistently backpedaled and stayed off that line. He he has the beer summit. He has Skip Gates and this unnamed officer to the White House to, to have a beer and bro it up and move forward in their lives, right? And you never really see Obama take that sort of this is ridiculous stance again when it comes to racial justice. In fact, he goes the opposite direction and, you know, calls protesters in Baltimore criminals and thugs. He goes to Flint, Michigan and drinks the water twice uh, in other instances where it's a very direct kind of slap in the face. And so it's interesting in the the dilemma that you kind of pose about presidential disruptions or lack thereof, that very often, if you accept, if you're preserving 
the status quo, then everything's fine. And that's one of the challenges of social movements is that it's intentionally disrupting the status quo because we have come to accept a certain norm around politics in America that actually consistently undermines, disadvantages, disenfranchises, and otherwise makes second-class citizens of the same people every time and worse and worse over time and growing and growing groups. So I'll say that. And then in terms of the language of evolution or revolution, I think we just thought it was clever <laughs> for starters. We thought it was clever, particularly in the context of social movements that talk about revolutionary politics. And I think the line that we were trying to draw is that the conversation, when you study social movements, the conversations that folks are having is flattening some of the political substance of their work. And by that, I mean that some folks think that everyone engaged in social movement work is engaged in revolutionary work. And this is beyond just saying that there are liberal and conservative politics. This is actually getting to that deeper question about what you're doing with the system itself. How are you relating to these institutions? How do you want to change them? And so in that sense, if you think about Trumpism and white nationalism, they are actually trying to fundamentally change some of the democratic norms and standards of the system, which, which is why we wrote the, the document itself, because it's doing so much work on that front. And that would be a revolutionary change to take away what semblance of democracy exists in these institutions. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are doing work that people want, right? And that's why we wrote the document. But being able to differentiate between these revolutionary changes, evolutionary changes, I think the big distinction between what we're doing and what Gehring is saying about preservation, while preservation does align very similarly in these contexts, I think evolution allows us to talk about its differentiation from revolution. And so we could have said preservation versus dismantling. We could have said preservation versus destroying institutions. We could have done all sorts of things. But I do think that that notion of preservation doesn't necessarily get to the counterpoint when we are moving from revolution to evolution, because we are talking about substantive change and evolutionary change is not necessarily preserving the system as it is. It's still pushing it and pushing it further. But it could be argued that evolution also includes those who are driving the system beyond just preserving it. It is a transformation. It's just not a transformation that fundamentally shifts the way that power relationships are organized in those structures. And so I just think evolution captures a little bit more range there. And for the type of chapter we were writing, we really wanted to, to get into that or capture it. Right. And that, that relationship with power element makes a lot of sense to me, but it, it did, it did raise a lot of questions in my mind that some of which I think are, you know, not resolved in terms of our politics. Uh, some of that has to do with what's going on on the right as far as who are and what are the aims of some of these movements on the right. I mean, we're experiencing this right now as we as we record on September 25th, 2023, that, you know, the House Freedom Caucus and its sort of uh, new successors, I mean, talk about an evolution, right? Um, evolution into a kind of politics that that really does, you know, want to want to dismantle systems, right? And that I, I, I use that advisedly, I know that's, that is the language of kind of progressive social movements, but it's also, I think, something you have seen maybe in the last decade or so, maybe since the Tea Party, is this idea of really, you know, radical dismantling 
for conservative ends. And I wonder if that's if that's something that that you all have have thought about. Yeah. I mean, I find it fascinating to think about conservative movement through a lens of revolution and dismantling change. And by fascinating, I am very, very, very much skipping over the more terrifying aspects of fascism, legitimately terrifying things. But at the same time, yeah, I think being able to have the conversation about how they are uniquely engaging in this work, I think it allows us to have better conversations about what we're looking for. So if I circle back to the idea that I was saying in the beginning about mutual toleration and institutional forbearance versus a contentious politics approach, I think being able to have that conversation might push us rather than engaging in toleration, it might push us instead to think about accountability, to think about institutions as having mechanisms to be able to incorporate feedback better, and that being acknowledged as a fundamental change to what they're doing at present. And if you have that lens, if you're capable of kind of viewing it through that lens, then when you look back at these conservative movements that are also looking for a type of revolutionary change, you can frame that work that they're doing as work that wants to change and make institutions, despite their current limitations, even less accountable to the needs and the whims of wide groups of people. And so these are the complicated challenges where we're not necessarily dealing with your side versus my side. We're in you know, a torture trap where there are a million different sides and you have to figure out how to sway these different conversations in such a way that will prevent you from destroying others, but also prevent others from destroying themselves. And that that's, it's just a challenging space. And I think in the academic uh, conversation, I think we have a habit of pretending that we are being objective and unbiased and, just, you know, scientifically pure in a sense, but in actuality, I think nine times out of 10, we're actually very directly having a conversation about this is what we need to do to make democracy better, right? You read any conclusion and it'll be like, well, the conclusions of my work suggest that if we want democracy, then we need to do X and Y and Z, right? And that is construed very often as objective argument. And I think from a social movement perspective, if you are forced, because if you study social movements, you have to study institutions and then you're allowed to study social movements. You can't, you can't do one without the other, but you can study institutions without social, studying social movements. So mm -hmm. shout out to our syllabi. Um, but once you are forced to kind of see that huge picture, then your inclination is more about setting the table more so than saying, I want you to do X or Y or Z. It's more so me saying, I want you to account for X and Y and Z. And once you're able to do that, I think the picture changes a bit. The, the hue is different because it makes you think differently about how you understand the capital T, capital P, V problem and how then you might address said problem when you are accounting for various different factors. So for me, I, I like to think about it like gumbo. And I think you know, good gumbo or bad gumbo, you're going to have a lot of ingredients in that thing. But it's about how you put them together. It's about how they're arranged. It's about the temperature. It's about the seasoning. It's about all sorts of things. And then at some point, it has to be about the people who are going to eat it. And that, I think, is a limitation broadly of, of academia, but also just a general challenge in a society where quick information is easy to get 
complicated information is hard to understand. And those are things that we try to convey in, in our academic parlance and in our very short opportunities to publish. Uh, and I hope we did it. But, you know, can't win them all. <laughs> um, no, I think, I mean, I think it does perform that function in the report is kind of pushing back a little bit on some of the assumptions. And I think that that's, I think that that's right. I think essentially, I mean, my take of, on this story is political scientists have mostly been trained to, to, you know, it's right there in the name, right, to analyze evidence and be objective. And then we hit this kind of critical point in 2016, where that framework wasn't going to work anymore. And people have sort of grappled for a framework. And I don't want to I don't want to attribute this to anyone in particular, and I don't think this is everybody, but I think there's a significant number of people who want to have a normative framework, but one that doesn't offend anybody. And that's that's really difficult. And some people have a very strong institutional imperative. If you work at a public institution, right, you're you're you have certain pressures sometimes, depending on where you're at. But I think that that's right. And I think it's important for people who can to keep pushing back on the kinds of normative frameworks that are designed not to offend anybody. I guess so. I want to be respectful of your time and of the, you know, the boundaries of the podcast format and kind of ask a, a question just to wrap up. And this is about the impact of the, the Biden presidency on revolutionary social movements. It seems to me like, you know, 2016, the Democratic Party was really interested in incorporating the movement for black lives that that interest was not fully reciprocated. Um, and the, the Biden presidency has just been a really interesting racial presidency, which on the one hand has um, been really focused on descriptive representation. On the other hand, has, you know, talked about funding the police. Um, you know, I, I'm interested in what you think about what has maybe changed since 2021 and what are kind of the prospects for these forms of, of social organizing as we move into the next decade of the 21st century? A nice small question to, to uh, end the podcast. Yeah, no. Um, I love it. And I love being here. And I hope we can have these conversations again. Let's see where to start. So Joe Biden, I think this the thing that I love about the question is that it's about what's the impact of these things? Because I do think we can have these conversations without necessarily saying, you know, I support this movement or that movement. As opposed to saying, like, this is the impact that this thing has had and being able to capture that impact with a wide, as wide a breadth as possible, the good, the bad, the ugly, everything. Right. And I think the Joe Biden presidency has had a sobering effect. I think the timing is relevant. So movements very often, radical left movements in particular, tend to have a lifespan at maximum about 10 years. And we are at. 11 years since Trayvon Martin was killed in Sanford, Florida. And so the Joe Biden administration, unlike the Obama administration, has not seen as engaged a movement for Black lives. It's debatable. Some people believe that the movement is over. Some people believe then that with Joe Biden in office, that the movement has transitioned to the wing of the movement that has always been there. Focus on anti-capitalism, and particularly as we're seeing in the resurgent labor movement. So shout out to the WGA, who apparently might just have a deal on the table. But the idea then that the organizing that we're seeing now is an offshoot, is, a, is an advancement or a, a moving forward of the movement for Black lives. And if it is, even better, right? We need labor work, too. Um, I think specifically, though, the Biden administration, you're right. I do believe they have 
leaned heavily on descriptive representation, but they're also doing something that I find fascinating, which is getting back into the idea of big government for big government's sake, social services, creating opportunities to actually address the increasingly challenging living conditions of the average everyday person. There's a a tweet that I saw. It said, you're spending your money bad. You need to live within your means. And the person responds like, the means are living above me. Like, I I can't actually (laughs) keep up with this. You know, Um, there are a lot of screenshots. They'll show like things that used to be on the dollar menu for fast food is now like $4. It's like, things are different. We're in a different Mm -hmm. context. And so I do think that the Biden administration is facing an uphill battle because I don't think that the uh, country dealing with misinformation and propaganda at the level that we deal with right now, I don't think we're equipped to deal with that in a way that it can actually be effective for leftist movement. The algorithms have changed. That's the short version. (laughs) The short version is that the social media algorithms have changed and you can't get as much traction or as much widespread notoriety for getting your message out there online. It's actually, it looks very different now and it has leaned towards benefiting the right. And so I think as much as I would like to attribute certain specific specific, like implications to Biden and his administration, what I think is fair and reasonable to say is only that that administration has shown an inclination and a willingness to try and put forward legislation that would serve and benefit the masses more more broadly. And they have not been successful on several of their initiatives and attempts, but I do think that social movements would have us engage in a politics that would show these efforts as opposed to the ones historically where they're happening behind the scenes, allegedly, and we just don't understand this complicated process. I like the idea of an administration saying, we're going to put it out there. We're going to try. And you get to find out who is saying no when we're trying to help you. I think one last thing I would add is that there is the idea that what is happening today is somewhat new and not you know, as extreme as saying racism started with Donald Trump, but something As extreme to say that mass incarceration is a 21st century invention. And I think there is a a challenge in the public eye, but also sometimes in the academy, with folks who think that the status quo was ever good enough for some people. And I don't think my work is so much focused on saying that, you know, well, actually, you know, I'm not I'm not doing that. But I am saying that if you understand the story and the history of America to be saying that some people are okay with the shortcomings consistently falling on one side of the table, and this is for racial, racially marginalized groups, gender marginalized groups, uh, sexuality, disability, class, et cetera. If you say that the status quo at some point has ever been favorable for those groups, the challenge then becomes to identify that time. And if you do not take into account the fact that the American experience has been a nightmare for many people for as long as the country has existed and for some even longer, then I think that changes the tone and tenor of the conversation that we're not trying to get back to where we were, but that we're actually trying to get somewhere we've never been. And that is the hope and the vision of my work 
without necessarily being, you know, fully dispassionate or objective, but actually acknowledging the limitations that we all face and trying to do work that is truthful, that is honest, and that is actually contributing something to the public and intellectual discourse that doesn't already exist. Well, that is a fantastic place for us to end, but I want to ask you for a little coda, <laughs> um, a clarification, and then we'll, then uh, we can, we can end. When you say mass incarceration is a 21st century phenomenon, are we talking kind of long 21st century and the uh, kind of wind up through the sixties, like Elizabeth Hinton's work, or am I missing something entirely? If you just, if you would be so kind as to clarify that, that'd be great. That'd yeah. Be great. That it is not a 21st century phenomenon only is what I was saying. Oh, yeah. Okay. Got yeah, it. No, okay. no, 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 yeah, no, no. Mass incarceration is a part of a larger process that is that has been in motion for at least fifty plus years, and debatably longer if you think about uh, policing as directly tied to slave patrols. But the idea of mass incarceration and the process of containing and uh, I heard somebody describe it as domestic deportations, which I don't think caught on probably for good reason. But the idea of taking people out of society, Saskia Sassen talks about this in 2014 and expulsions, the idea of taking people out of rotation, essentially taking them out of the process. That's something that we've been engaged in the United States as a country for decades, uh, long before even the Bush administration Clinton as well. And you could pretty easily trace it back to at least Ronald Reagan and the work that he did in California to try and counteract the Black Panther political party in California, which launched him into the presidency in the White House. But he was doing that work long before. And so I think the way that we understand the, the broader conversation is helpful. Great. Okay. Thank you. Yes. I, I just mis misheard you, but I wanted to make sure that I, I clarified that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marcus Broad, for, for joining us today on Politics in Question. I was really happy to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.